Hello and welcome to One Digital's COVID-19 Employer Advisory Podcast. The purpose of this podcast is to provide business leaders with the latest commentary on evolving business and economic news that impacts healthcare, business, and the workplace. In each episode, our One Digital advisors will be addressing evolving coronavirus situations, translating them for employers so they can be proactive for their organizations and develop their business planning strategies. Welcome, everybody. Our latest topic on the COVID-19 employer advisory session is around business guidance. With all this talk around loan forgiveness and the stimulus, I think it's time to really kind of start digging in on some of the key topics that many of our clients are facing and uh, really just trying to put in perspective the guidance uh, that they are looking for and asking for from us uh, in terms of navigating all these new programs. So my name is Bill Carew. I'm the Chief Operating Officer here at One Digital, and I have a panel of esteemed experts joining me today, starting off with Mr. David Hughes, who heads up our HR consulting practice in Georgia, David Pittard, our Managing Principal for One Digital Georgia, Jason Chepnick from the sunny state of Florida, and of course, Cammie Boyd, who's our Vice President of Small Business that works primarily in our segment that serves uh, customers with uh, under 50 employees. So we have hopefully a nice cross-section of folks here today to lead the conversation. I want to, first of all, thank you for, for joining us for this session. And we really, truly appreciate your business, your support, your trust that you place in us at One Digital. And we really value the time that you are investing with us as we all try to navigate these challenging times and the crisis that is COVID-19. So without further ado, I would like to jump in and provide a little bit of background to hopefully set the table for our conversation. You know, the, when we think about the onset of this crisis and we think about what our clients are dealing with, the first and foremost, it really does center on figuring out what is the right pathway for their specific business to navigate the short term, right? We're all focused on what are the immediate implications for the economy? What are the immediate implications for our customers? What are the implications for our business? And where do we prioritize? On top of that, the government has put, has given us many new tools that allow us to um, find different types of relief that have come through the stimulus package, the Families First, and other programs that we have available. So, you know, businesses are trying to not only navigate what's right for managing their business in the short term, they have to navigate, you know, the implications for all these, these relief programs. And on top of that, there's all sorts of different eligibility rules that they need to interpret based on industry size and structure and things like that. Trying to understand how these relief programs are going to help stabilize their business and lead us um, through this crisis and hopefully on the outside, which is to grow as we come back, as the economy comes back online. The uh, all these things have created additional administration and compliance, tracking these guidelines and really administering some of the details around the programs become a whole new set of concerns that employers have. So what we're going to do today is really try to put these in perspective for you. Let's start with a quick update on the largest of the programs, which is the PPP, the, the Paycheck Protection Program that was part of the CARES Act, the stimulus bill. The initial $350 billion went like that. You know, the, the SBA said that they uh, dispersed 14 years 
worth of loans in 14 days. So just try to digest that for a second. In the course of two weeks, the SBA gave out more money than they had in the previous 14 years. Staggering amount of administration that goes along with it. So anyway, needless to say, that money dried up. And uh, right now, Congress is hopefully working their way through the, the next almost half a billion dollars worth of relief that will come as part of that program, 321, um, which is earmarked for the PPP. Uh, it also includes some additional money for the economic disaster loans, for hospitals, and for, for testing as well. But hopefully that bill will be working its way through the House and, and end up getting signed by the president this week, fingers crossed. Um, and so that for employers out there that haven't gotten their, their PPP money, if you've applied for it, um, then your, your applications will be getting addressed in due course. You should be in contact with your lenders right now. For those of you that have not yet applied, I'd be really making sure that you got out there. What we learned from the first round is that many of the smaller community-based banks and credit unions uh, are more responsive than these larger banks. And specifically in this bill that uh, just passed the Senate, there's, there's $60 billion that is earmarked just for community banks and for, um, for credit unions and those type of lenders. So I would just say, if you haven't gotten your application approved, make sure that you're on top of this um, this week and, and making sure that you've got all, everything that the lender needs to address it in case this money does um, get released here over the next few days. Anyway, so the thing that we're hearing most about from our clients right now is, is the provisions around loan forgiveness. So if you've already received your funds, then the clock is ticking on um, how you can spend that and what the things that you can do to maximize loan forgiveness. In the 10 days after you start accessing, I'm sorry, you have 10 days um, after your lender has approved to access the loan. If you don't use it, then it goes away. It goes back into the pool. So if you've been approved, make sure you're paying attention to that 10-day um, clock that's ticking. And then, and then we enter into the eight-week window here, which is really um, the, 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 the evaluation period for um, when you're accessing the, these funds, how they can be used, and what is the impact on Forgiveness. So let's talk. Let's talk about forgiveness here. Seventy-five percent of the funds that you borrow through the PPP have to be spent on payroll-related expenses to be considered forgiveness. That was a a, a clarification and a technicality that came through on the final regs. And of course, the amount of that that is forgiven is also affected by how your headcount goes up and down. I'm not going to get into the details of that calculation here, but that's obviously a key consideration, which we've talked about in prior sessions. That is, what is the average headcount in this eight-week window, and how does it compare to the pre-crisis levels? That will determine the percentage that the loan that is forgivable um, provided you've hit that 75% threshold. And of course, amounts that are not forgiven are subject to a 1% interest rate in a loan that um, is amortized over two years. And that kicks in after, um, uh, after the first payments are due after six months. So that's a little bit of the table setting on the PPP, which is obviously the biggest program that um, we've heard about so far. Do not want to lose sight from a couple of the other programs that are available. And throughout the course of our conversation today, I'm going to ask Cami Boyd to make sure that we, we bring reference back to some of these other programs because for smaller business, these could be uh, equally as impactful as the PPP. The uh, Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program 
um, that is available to uh, all businesses that have been affected by uh, the, the crisis. The uh, emergency advance for these funds, even if you're not improved, as soon as you apply for the loan, you, you can get a $10,000 advance immediately. So within three days, access to $10,000. Did I say 10 million? Hopefully not. $10,000 is available um, right away. And then, of course, there's the employee retention tax credit, which we'll have an example of how that works, um, which is essentially allows you to take a credit against payroll taxes um, for the first $10,000 in wages. So that's basically a $5,000 tax credit. More details will be included in these slides. So just consider this to be a little bit of reference that we'll, we'll, um, we'll, we'll tie back to in our conversation. So... All these government programs that are out there, we have to figure out how to take advantage of them. But the one thing that I wanted to make sure that we really talked about was the importance of focusing first on your business strategy. This is a, this is a, a large and, and disruptive economic event that we're all managing our way through. And so we have to focus first of all on the business strategy. So looking at what the business strategy, the right strategy for your business will help drive what your approach is to managing your workforce, which really is the single biggest component that determines um, compliance with the federal programs and the ability to have dollars forgiven. So I think there's really three potential strategies that I see from my business contacts, my friends, our clients that we talk to. I see three different pathways that most employers are pursuing. The first I will call growth capital, which is I've received PPP proceeds and um, I've decided that my strategy needs to be to conserve as much of that capital as I can. Not just the loan proceeds, but my, my liquidity, my cash. I have to conserve cash because it's going to be a while, a while before we come out of this and my customers come back online. So therefore, I'm trying to buy time. So I call that growth capital. You're taking that money and you're trying to preserve as much of it for when we come out of this crisis. At the other end of the spectrum is employers that are saying, you know what, I'm just going to pass as much of this as I can directly through to my employees. Even if I don't have work for them to do, I'm going to ask them uh, to, to, uh, to, to work as much as they can, but I'm going to pay them fully so that I'm maximizing the amount that of the payments that I paid to my employees. I call that the employee stimulus. That's not leaving any money left over for capital coming out of the crisis. It really is just a stimulus, giving it to the employees, just like the government intended, get as much money into the hands of these employees, and hopefully they're gonna go out there and start spending it to, to, uh, to revitalize the economy. And then the last option is what I call an operating grant, which is really kind of about finding the optimal balance between one and two. So the goal here is to really manage your workforce so that you maximize the forgiveness provisions of the loan and minimizing expenses, which therefore would allow you to have as much dollars left over as possible while maximizing your forgiveness. So I call that the operating grant. And so here's just an illustration of what it might look like. On the horizontal axis, you have the amount of loan forgiveness. To the far left, it's, it's having no um, amount of the loan forgiven, so it's a full two-year loan. And on the right-hand side, it's fully forgiven. And then in the vertical axis, it's preserving capital. So at the top of, the, of that axis, we're maximizing uh, capital preservation, and at the bottom, we're minimizing it. And you can see up in the upper left is option one, which is growth capital, which is I'm not worrying at all about forgiveness. 
I'm trying to just keep my powder dry, keep as much financial resources as I can for when I come out of this crisis. And then in the lower right, the other extreme is the employee stimulus where I'm maximizing forgiveness, but I'm also spending all that money. So I have nothing left over coming out of it. And then, of course, the operating grant example is uh, kind of as much as close to the middle as possible, but it's closer to the forgiveness side because we're trying to optimize forgiveness. So trying to preserve as much as we can um, while uh, maximizing forgiveness. So that's just kind of an illustration of what that looks like. So let's start segueing into our conversation if we can. So on the left hand of this screen is just a couple of the questions that employers and clients are looking at when they think about their business strategy. It really is business continuity, managing through a, uh, a, uh, a crisis. I'm not going to read each of these bullet points, but it's essentially around monitoring and managing cash flow and liquidity, and then trying to understand how and when are we going to come out of this national shutdown, and what is my business, how is my business going to be performing through this? How long is it going to take for me to replenish work from my customers? This really is um, an analysis that is just understanding not just your customers and not just your suppliers, but your customers' customers. And even the next layer down, your customers' customers' customers, as well as their supplies. By taking, taking that analysis down a couple of layers, you'll really get a better visibility into when your business is likely to emerge here from, from this crisis. And on the right-hand side, it's the questions related to your workforce plan. And this is where I'm going to ask David Hughes to start jumping in here if we can. This is really about what are some of the considerations that I have to have when um, I, I figure out what is likely to happen with my business, and then how do I strike, start treating my employees? So David, let's, um, let's get going with you if we can. How do you see the relationship here between the workforce strategy and the business strategy? Well, uh, thank you, Bill. So certainly the workforce strategy has to follow the business strategy, right? You know, whether in one of those three scenarios in this particular case or whether it's just general business in, in more normal times, really the workforce strategy follows along behind. And what's, what's going on right now, the, the pressure on HR departments is really kind of a, a blend between these traditional challenges and, and some brand new things that they really never faced. So the, that constant is always that business strategy, you know, leads the workforce strategy. Um, people planning, let's talk about that for a second. So that's, you know, particularly important right now, but there's nothing very new about it as a, as a key competency, really, you know, capable HR departments have always been prepared to staff up and down and inhale and exhale along with business cycles. But the, the new twist that I think is going to start showing itself more is something like remote working, right? So it's taken the forefront. I think we've got pretty good evidence now, you know, six weeks in almost that it can work. It does work in the right situations. And perhaps organizations that might have been reluctant to even give it a trial run uh, kind of had that choice made for them. And uh, I, I'd argue that many have been really pleasantly surprised by how it's actually gone. So that in turn is going to create new employee expectations, right, for the workplace. And HR departments are going to have to start scrambling to set new re remote work policies and think about identifying even more job roles that are capable of remote work. And then they're going to have to help the management, you know, deal with those challenges that arise from managing a remote workforce. So as these business strategies continue to react in response to the current challenges, 
the workforce strategy is going to have to adapt as well. And that's certainly the way that we approach our work with our customers. So, so if I look at the, the types of questions and the concerns that our customers are raising these past few weeks, a lot of it has to do with navigating these relief programs. We've spent a lot of time helping our customers really try to understand what these relief programs are and how, might, how they might work. But there's, there's big people planning issues related to that, right, David, in terms of just the compliance with those, with the, the acts and some of the administrative burdens and trackings. How is that affecting the people planning part of this? Well, I think that the, the biggest short-term challenge has been the, the massive flow of information, right? Um, it's just coming from everywhere. I'm, I'm not even in corporate HR anymore, and I'm just bombarded every day with opinions and guidance and tips, and customers are saying the same thing. It's really their, their biggest challenge has been sorting through the volume to find out those little tidbits that really most closely fit, you know, with their own particular situation. And it's really why we, One Digital as a company, knew right from the start how important it would be to offer something like what we did with the advisory hub, um, which is at onedigital.com slash coronavirus. So we, we decided to make it our job just sort through the information that's out there to vet it and make sure it was accurate and keep it all organized and in one place without 30 different articles saying the same thing, or worse, these articles that directly conflict with each other, which we've all seen plenty of, of that too. So I'm, I'm really proud of, of the company for, for doing it, and I'm really thankful for all the one digital, digital people around the clock for weeks on end to keep this resource up to date for our customers. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can remember that weekend right yeah. after the stimulus passed, I started getting into layers of detail that I hadn't been to in a long time in terms of trying to understand the complexities of the legislation, how they may apply to clients. It was a whole new realm of work that I hadn't seen really since the first days of healthcare reform, you know, almost 10 years ago. So, um, but one of the things that I've been guilty of, and I'm going to ask Cammy to comment on this if she could for a second, is I've been sort of a little bit obsessed with the PPP. I think about the huge amount of dollars that are going in there and this idea that we have the potential to have uh, loans forgiven. I really have gotten caught up with that, almost to the detriment, though, to some of the other programs that are a little more accessible to smaller business. So, Cammie, what's your, what's your take on that? Yeah, I would agree. It was the uh, first program that launched that offered access to cash right away, and a lot of employers obviously took advantage of that. There are some additional programs that small businesses should really consider because they offer for those employers that are at risk of closing their doors access to cash right away. Um, I've got a few salient points that I want to talk about as it relates to those other programs, but before I do, these programs that are geared towards small business employers are truly defined as employers with 500 or fewer employees that are eligible to take advantage of these programs. Um, additional insight that I want to offer include program related to and called the Economic Injury Disaster Loan. This isn't uh, a new program. It exists already. I think the thing that's key with this program is that it includes some expansion provisions due to the CARES Act. In order to qualify, you must have suffered a substantial economic injury and be in a presidentially declared disaster area. And as many of you probably already know, on March the 13th, 2020, the president issued an emergency declaration declaring the entire country a disaster area. So virtually any small business in the United States can consider applying for this loan. 
Program expansion provisions include more favorable loan terms, such as lower interest rates and longer payment terms, as well as expanded eligibility. So employers, again, with 500 employees or less can apply. So if you're an employer and you're thinking, what if I need money today? What if my disaster loan that I applied for already was ultimately declined? What can I do? You can ask the Small Business Administration, also referred to as the SBA, for an emergency grant up to $10,000. And you know what's great about this grant is that the money does not have to be repaid. Additionally, the SBA is reporting that applicants can get access to this, access to this cash quick and what we're hearing as of last week within three days. So for anybody that's interested in applying, all you have to do is go to the Business Administration's website at www.sba.gov and you'll find the application there. You know, that, that, that $10,000, you know, almost an almost immediate advance is um, is really powerful. And, and for, for smaller businesses, you know, if I've got five or 10 or 15 employees, you know, that can be really, really helpful in short notice. And the fact that we don't have to repay it's a true grant is, uh, is great. Well, so let, let's, let's, um, and, and by the way, we, I've got some more detailed slides that I'm sharing right now that'll be part of the package that um, is available um, with this recording. So, um, we don't need to get into a lot of the details here, but let me skip ahead if I could to um, a couple of the other programs because the other, the PPP we've talked about quite a bit, but talk to yeah. us a little bit about the retention credit and, um, and the ability to delay payroll taxes if we can. Yeah, this is a program designed to encourage employers to keep their employees on their payroll that have experienced a significant decline in gross receipts, despite the economic hardship related to COVID-19. And as Bill referred to, the Employee Retention Tax Credit Program, it is fully refundable for employers and applies to qualified wages paid after March 12, 2020 and before January 1, 2021. So an example of how this would work, if an eligible employer pays $10,000 in qualified wages to an employee in quarter two of 2020, the employee retention credit available to the employer for the qualified wages paid is $5,000. Eligible employers were able to claim the credit for qualified wages paid as early as March 13, 2020. And reporting is very easy. Employees simply need to include their total wages and related credits for each calendar quarter on their federal employer's quarterly federal tax return, also referred to as nine, uh, Form 941. There's one thing, though, that I want to make sure and point out, however, an eligible employer may not receive the employer retention credit if they receive a loan under the PPP program. And conversely, an employer that receives a paycheck protection loan should not claim the employee retention credits. Great. Excellent. And then, and then, so the other part of this is there are some some deferrals of taxes that are available too for um, employers and self-employed. Um, that's also uh, can be a very easily and quickly accessible part of relief. So I think that the, the message here is that we talk so much about PPP. We talk so much about the half a billion dollars of new money coming in. I'm sorry, half a trillion. Sorry. Um, and uh, but there are a lot of these these uh, relief programs available. So. 
you know, David, we've, we've, we've been hearing a lot of customers looking for help trying to navigate these things. And you've been busy trying to work on a, a tool that will help them, you know, figure out how these might work for them. You want to share that? Um, yeah, sure. We're happy to. So uh, One Digital developed a, a business relief calculator. It was a, a quick little tool that helps employers analyze which of these two programs, in this case, is particularly the PPP or the Employee Retention Payroll Tax Credit. And it'll help you uh, assess qualification, how much you might qualify for. Again, you got you can only choose one or the other. Uh, you know, sometimes people are eligible for both. Sometimes they're eligible for one or the other. Sometimes they're eligible for neither. But this little quick tool is going to help you, you, you figure that out. Um, and it's really easy to use. Practically anybody can do it. If you want to learn a little bit more about it, we, we do have a link to it at the end of this presentation. But that stuff can be found at onedigital.com slash stimulus hyphen guidance. So I, I'm, an, I'm a business and I've been trying to uh, minimize my, my expenses, whether I've applied for the loan as part of this first stimulus wave or if it's part of um, just my strategy to, to preserve capital. What's going on in terms of the, uh, the benefit planning side that you're seeing uh, as, as, as clients are focused on navigating this crisis these days? Uh, thanks, Bill. So let's take the first scenario where we have employer groups that are fortunate to be in a, a more flexible financial position. Um, so that might be the the, the growth segment that uh, you referenced earlier as a consideration. And, and these employer groups, while benefits may not be right, benefit strategy for that matter, may not be at the forefront of their minds of the workforce strategy. Um, we're engaging with the clients to understand, to help them understand that just like other segments of the economy, uh, healthcare in particular and the delivery of healthcare within the U.S. Um, is likely going to be transformed in, in some respects as it relates to how COVID-19 ha has had an impact. And so there's two predominant areas that we're bringing to the forefront of the conversation. And while it might seem that they're, they're, they're down the road considerations, many of these employer groups um, whether they have renewals in the second half of this plan year or up to January 1, the decisions that they're making are coming in the, in the upcoming weeks and or months. And, and so the, the potential changes are, are relevant to them now. And, and the two big areas first is uh, access to care. In this country, we already have a, a labor shortage of healthcare providers, so a shortage of doctors and nurses, and we don't expect that to, to improve in the coming years, unfortunately. If, if you consider young people today as they're going into post-secondary education, um, frontline medicine may not be as attractive to them as it might have been prior to this, and so we could continue to see a labor shortage which could compound the access to care issues. And then uh, an additional consideration is the rising cost of, of segments within the healthcare dollar itself that we haven't seen increase in a number of years. So uh, inpatient, outpatient services is with physicians, hospitals, and so forth. The, the inflation in that area has not been to the same level that we've seen in the prescription drug area in recent years, but uh, healthcare providers are not likely to be in, in the same financial position um, in the upcoming uh, months and years that they might have been prior to this uh, pandemic event. And so we might see a, a rising increase of cost that we haven't seen in other sectors of the healthcare dollar. And so as we work to plan with uh, these clients that access to care and the rising cost are two central 
um, elements that we're looking at. So from an access standpoint, broadening uh, platforms, whether it be telemedicine or other provider access considerations, such as on-site or near-site clinics or the, the emerging direct primary care fields are good examples of uh, different uh provider access solutions that employer groups can can consider to help combat that in their markets. And then around cost itself, plan design is always at the forefront of managing costs. So whether it's moving more to a consumer-directed option, uh, there's the uh, many more narrow network considerations where you can secure deeper dis provider discounts by narrowing that network. Um, and that those are options that are available in all size segments for businesses with insurance carriers and self-funded. And then all the way over to the value-based or reference-based pricing options. So those are examples of where employers are looking to do everything they can to really control the employer portion of, of the overall spend and the rising um, healthcare cost. And, and finally, the, the shift that we've seen um, across all industry or size segments towards uh, more and more partially self-funded options, whether that be level-funded or traditionally self-funded, we expect that migration to continue in the upcoming months and, and year. And uh, the benefit for employer groups there is it, it provides more access to their claims experience, uh, uh, which then would subsequently allow more claims analytics so that we can drill down and figure out where employers can have a greater impact um, on the overall uh, cost. And then uh, leveraging opportunities maybe around the prescription drug area. Oftentimes, our pharmacy consultants are producing up to 10% uh, just unit cost basis reduction um, with, with how we contract for, for drugs and when they really maximize overall plan management up to a 38% reduction. So when we think about these employer groups that maybe are in that growth uh, phase, uh, in the past it might have been they might have considered one of these options for an upcoming renewal. And uh, going forward, knowing that the overall delivery system is going to be altered or impacted, we believe it might be more of an all the above in some various aspects that they they look to consider. And so, in the in the next few weeks and months, that's the the, the consulting and, and council we're we're working with the employer groups across the board. So, it, it, just. Yeah, Cammy, go ahead. Hey, Bill. Just yeah, I just want to offer just some additional thoughts on that too. We think about cost mitigation strategies. There's one that's been around, and we've primarily seen larger employers take advantage of this. But it's it truly is an option for small group employers to think about as well. So when we think about spousal surcharges or carve outs as a way to be able to cost mitigate to some degree, they become more common after the Affordable Care Act provided a mechanism to make coverage available for spouses through the marketplace. These options offer a means to control healthcare expenses for employers. Spousal carve-outs generally mean an employer will not offer spousal coverage to spouses who have group health coverage available through their own employer. And in terms of spousal surcharges, spouses who are offered health coverage Coverage, even though they have alternative employer coverage available, but choose not to elect it. So a surcharge is applied. These options are used to encourage spouses to enroll in health coverage available through their employer. Uh, you know, one thing to, to note, though, it is, a, is it, it is important that in some states there may be laws that prohibit spousal carve-outs or surcharges or preclude their use. Because state rules vary, it's really important to make sure that you're contacting your one digital consultant for more information or, in fact, uh, reaching out to your department 
market assurance in your state. Another thought that I'd like to offer is, you know, employers could offer a monetary award for spouses not enrolling in health plan. It's important to keep in mind that any monetary award should be provided for under the cafeteria plan and on a taxable basis. Um, a couple more ideas that you might want to consider include extending prescription drug prior authorizations, adding benefit offer, uh, offerings that, uh, to David's point, he referred to as telemedicine. This program increases access to care, reduces healthcare costs, and improves patient engagement satisfaction. And, and lastly, there is no doubt that COVID-19 has had an impact on individuals um, you know, emotionally, financially, et cetera. And because of this, access to employee assistance programs are a great option to consider. EAP programs assist employees with personal and or work-related issues that may impact their health, their mental and emotional well-being, as well as job performance. EAPs generally offer free and confidential assessment, short-term counseling referrals, and follow-up services for employees. So, in fact, some carriers are including access to EAP programs in employee medical plans. If you're unsure if an EAP program is available to you, please reach out to your One Digital consultant for more information. Yeah, I, mean, I think, you know, we're, we're talking about workforce planning here, right? We're talking about our people. And um, I think those those points that you made there at the end, Cami, are really um, important to remember. You know, we provide employee benefits for the benefit of employees. And in times like this, I mean, I think your earlier description and, and David Pitter, what you were discussing as well, we're really talking about managing costs as aggressively as possible. So this is the balance, right? This is the balance of that, that, that most employers are going through right now. My business strategy tells me that it's going to be three to four to five months before my business comes out of this crisis and starts to get back to anything that resembles normal. If I'm in that position, then I'm trying to consume as much cash as possible, which means I've got aggressive cost management programs in place. But balancing that with telemedicine, EAP, and things like that, just to make sure that employee, we, can't, we, we can't forget about what our employees are going through as well. It's that delicate balance um, that, uh, that makes this so challenging. So, so David Pitter, let me come back to you. Just one quick, quickly touch on, if you could, um, if I'm a business that has, you know, substantially, you know, kind of shut down, like if, I, if, I, if I'm really almost, um, uh, gone through a, a big reduction in force or I've had to furlough people. What are some of the things that I need to be thinking about here that maybe you haven't touched on already? Well, certainly, Bill, as you spoke uh, a few minutes ago to maximizing the, uh, the, the ability to have the, the potential stimulus loan forgiven and, and making certain that, uh, 75% going towards compensation and benefits, uh, that's at the forefront of that workforce strategy component um, that provides some additional benefits to the employer in that it, it helps them stay uh, very connected to their employee base. So as they look at their, their ramp back up, um, as they see their business coming back online, they have the, the connection to that employee population. So that, that really gives them the, the great balance of minimizing any any repayment um so it helps financially and it it helps them stay connected uh to to the overall workforce um so that's probably at, at the at the front of it we're seeing 
as, as employer groups look at the ramp up, uh, certain industry segments, maybe manufacturing might be one of the more prevalent ones, looking at creative ways um, of bringing the workforce back online. So it might be alternating work weeks we see so that they really flex or stretch those dollars in the most uh, economical way for them as, 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 as they get back to uh, full capacity. And just you know a few considerations there is to make certain if, if employees are not working the number of hours that the policies previously required, that uh, the, the carriers are being great in terms of being flexible about changing those the policy requirements, but making certain they do that. And then as they bring employees back, there's going to be back premiums on certain benefits and just being thoughtful of how they might uh, be taking that back out of the paycheck for, for the for the employees as they come back online. So to have some consideration there and try to really ramp that that uh, repayment up of premiums uh, in a way that works for, for the population. Uh, elimination of certain benefits that maybe are unnecessary um, is, an, is another example. Um, I know Cami had some other great thoughts in this area. Yeah, for employers, uh, large and small, COVID-19 has triggered layoffs and furloughs have spread. Access to cash for many employers and employees may be low or non-existent. Some states have begun mandating that insurance issuers provide a longer grace period for premium payments. It's a great way for employers to take advantage of keeping that cash in-house. These measures ensure also that participants can remain covered and have access to healthcare coverage during this public health emergency. In some instances, carriers are reinforcing a 60-day grace period on the cancellation of insurance policies for non-payment of premiums. In addition, other carriers may require policyholders reach out to the carrier to request an extension. That's, so that's important to keep in mind because not all carriers are offering automatic extensions. Because state rules may vary, it's important to contact your one digital consultant for more information related to your state, or you can reach out to the Department of Insurance within your state for more details. Additionally, I'd like to talk a little bit about COBRA. Although it's a federal law that requires employers with 20 or more employees who offer health care benefits to offer the option of continuing this coverage to individuals who would otherwise lose their benefits due to termination of employment or reduction in hours or other certain events. Under current conditions, many who have lost their jobs do not know when they'll be employed again with access to medical benefits. So you know, paying premium for coverage may be an extremely costly proposition when compared to alternatives. Purchasing coverage on the individual market, especially for younger workers, can be less expensive than COBRA. Individuals who do not have an income for an extended period of time may qualify uh, for federal subsidies as well that could offset the cost of premiums. COBRA regulations are very clear on what employers must do related to notifying employees of their continuation benefits, but in these challenging times, employers should consider a communication strategy that includes required communications on COBRA augmented by education on alternative options such as the individual market and insight into subsidies. So, you know, as, as, I'm, as I'm thinking about and as I'm listening to this, you know, I'm kind of just just, um, you know, it, it's easy to kind of get overwhelmed by all the moving pieces here and all the details associated with this. I think, you know, David, David Hughes had said this at the beginning, you know, talking about people planning. And uh, I really do think that 
one of the things that we have to do as advisors here is make sure that we are helping our clients really understand the areas to spend their time and attention. And it really does go back to that business strategy. So I think it's important that we, um, we, we position the work that we do with our customers based upon their business strategy. So we know exactly where they, they stand and what their expectation is coming out of this um, this, this, this national shutdown, essentially, you know, what it, the, the assumptions about what's going to happen to, um, our clients and their customers and their customers, customers is really important in terms of trying to navigate all these different moving pieces about which, which levers should I move? So I think our folks, um, really have to be, uh, equipped to, to be able to lead these conversations because we can't expect our to, to keep track of all this stuff. They're trying to run their business, right? So that's, I guess, partly where our responsibility comes in. Um, I, I want to segue if we can, because I think one of the most fascinating and often overlooked areas in a crisis like this comes in the, in the retirement plan area. And I want, I want to get Jason to weigh in here a little bit. Um, just, just in terms of the workforce strategy as a whole, going through a crisis like this, Jason, what do you what do you think about here? What 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 are some of the big thoughts that you've got top of your mind? Uh, there's, there's a ton uh, happening in this space as people are super anxious about their own money and job security and whatnot. And I'd like to start by pointing out that the CARES Act also does have some new provisions uh, within it uh, to allow participants uh, access to uh, to their dollars. And so. Um, as Cami mentioned, some of the hardship provisions that exist within CARES Act uh, for access to health care, the same thing is now in place for retirement plans. Um, and so employees can have access up to $100,000 uh, via what's called a coronavirus relief distribution, or there's a new type of loan where they can access the hundred grand. Now, I do want to note that just because they have access to the $100,000 doesn't mean it's a good idea for participants to take out $100,000, uh, some of it being tax-free, some of it being uh, a delayed tax on it. Uh, plus, the, the new loan provisions can be an additional administrative burden to your plan. So you really should be uh, really considering this at, at, at your plan level and talking about it at the committee level and make sure it fits your your plan. And, you know, the hard thing here is the, the human element where we know impacts and employees that are families may need access to money. And so this may be their only option. Uh, so we're having some in-depth conversations with each of our plan sponsors to make sure we walk through the pros and the cons of each of the new provisions. Uh, but Bill, as you mentioned in the big picture, um, adding access points to employees uh, to spend down the retirement um, savings uh, really speaks to a much larger topic, which is financial well-being and the connective tissues between financial, physical, and mental well-being. Uh, the stress and anxiety from COVID-19 uh, combined with questions as to job security uh, and the stock market crashing has had a direct impact on all of us and, and especially to our clients' workforces. Um, and, and with that, productivity is impacted. The stress levels are so high that uh, an employee's cognitive ability is impacted. And this is exactly when we need our employees to be making good decisions. Uh, they're simply distracted. So if we look at the bigger picture, again, it's this idea of offering financial well-being programs is so important so we can prepare our most important asset, which is really our employees, uh, for unforeseen emergencies. And as we look into the future, we're hopeful that employers focus more on financial wellness initiatives, emergency savings vehicles, uh, and, and other uh, programs as we can see in real time, the impact of not having any formal program in place uh, has really impacted uh, our workforces. 
So, so Jason, anxiety, you know, sort of anxiety is at, at, at probably all time highs in a lot of, uh, among a lot of our employee base out there. And, um, but if I'm an employer, I'm kind of anxious myself too. And in a couple of the scenarios that we talked about a little bit earlier, one of my jobs as an employer is to make sure that my business can survive through this period. I might be looking at like cutting my 401k contributions and doing things like that to conserve, um, conserve money. How do you, how do you think about that from managing, uh, managing changes like that with your workforce? Yeah. So the employees were impacted with this, you know, the obvious anxiety, but you're right. A, a plan sponsor or an employer has a few things they can address right away. One is the cost impact. And so while most of the costs associated with managing a retirement plan are actually baked into the fund returns, the explicit cost is the match for the company profit sharing uh, or the company contribution. So, uh, so it's really important that companies uh, take a look at that. They review the economics to see what changes they can make uh, and, and make, uh, and then work with their plans, uh, with their record keeper and their consultants to put those plans in place. Uh, it also speaks to plan design in general. So while while most companies don't actually take the time to change their plan design year over year, it's not fun to say, but this actually creates a moment to sort of blow things up and start over again and take a look at if we were to start over again, what should our match policy be so that it can or our company contribution uh, look like so that we can uh, not just address the short-term needs, but also in the long-term, make sure that that our plan design and our rewards programs are matching up with the long-term success of, of our company. And the third one, which is also super important, are the legal requirements surrounding all the changes. That qualified retirement plans do have legal requirements uh, as part of, uh, of, of when you start to make these changes, you really have to understand the impact to um, making plan document changes, the impact to, um, there's, there's things like a safe harbor match, which you can't just change in the fly. It requires document changes, employee notifications, um, even removing uh, company uh, profit sharing uh, contributions often come with uh, the legal requirements behind it. And the big one is these new CARES Act retirement distribution options. They too have uh, certain requirements that they are considered a protected benefit. So once you add them into your plan, you can't simply just take them away once uh, your business is is back and operating in good order. So you really have to be thoughtful about, um, you know, not just taking knee-jerk reaction, making change, but being thoughtful to what things we have to do today uh, to keep our business survival uh, surviving, but then also as we start looking forward, map out what plan design do we want that fits uh, our organization, how it will look in the future. So yeah, I mean, obviously a lot of a lot of opportunities here, right? As you say, to kind of just really take a look at the long term. What are we uh, almost having a clean sheet of paper to decide what we need to do to to manage our plans going forward? And and again, just to kind of keep bringing it back, so much of what we're talking about has to has to do with, uh, with what our business strategy is and what our business outlook is. Outlook meaning short term. We've got to do whatever we can to make sure that we manage the business as efficiently and effectively as possible for the short term, but then also having a long view, meaning that we want to make sure that we're building, you know, the culture and the, and the type of business that, um, that we need to compete over the long term as well. So very challenging times on, on all fronts. Um, 
maybe just talk a little bit, um, if you wouldn't mind, I want to kind of segue the conversation a little bit to talk about some of the longer term impacts on productivity, but um, really just just in terms of managing the message again a little bit a, a little bit tighter and, and having a um, kind of an eye towards what the impact is on employees, especially if we're looking at you know kind of multiple generations in the in, in the workforce, things like that. What, what, what do you guys think as some of the key areas of, of uh, focus here? Yeah, well, it, it's, it's a great point. Um, making change at the plan sponsor level or the employer level is important, but delivering the message is really important. And, and we're going to, we'll use the term manage the message and it's key. So, you know, at first it's okay to spin the message uh, and to, and to use some optimism and some positive words, but, but try to use normal English, not, not deliver these required notices with legalese all in it. Uh, it's important to be transparent. Uh, employees want to feel good about why the change is being made um, and perhaps address the financial stability of the company. Um, and, and you're, you know, but, but understand you're dealing with employees' hard-earned savings. And so it's important to recognize the impact of the words being used when you tell them we're removing a match. Uh, at the end of the day, they should also uh, be told it, the match wasn't the thing that got them to the finish line. The message is the same. Save as much as you can, don't have debt, and have some emergency savings set aside in case of something like this. And so um, as we start to now address the, um, um, the workforce, as you mentioned, there is multi-generation, right? Those that are closer to retirement were impacted the most. They may have to work a few years longer. They may have to understand that they took too much risk in their accounts as they approach retirement and perhaps reconsider how much risk they're taking. At the same time, Communicate to them that the end game wasn't the day they retired, it's the day they passed this earth. So that can help relieve some stress to say, hey, your time horizon wasn't three years, it's really 33 years because you're going to live 30 years beyond retirement. And so, uh, and, and then the messaging you're giving to somebody who's 20 or 30 or 40, uh, this too shall pass. And to make sure that we're communicating relevant messaging based on where they are in the workforce, make sure they continue to save. Um, and um, you know, and it's it's also really important, you know, which was nice about this change in our world is that people are dreaming again and they are thinking about when this is done, what will I do? Am I going to travel the world? Am I going to spend more time with family? Whatever it is, they have dreams. And so as you start to communicate with them about the retirement plan, it's really nice to bring up what are the dreams and help map out and work with the consultant to figure out how much they should be saving so they can accomplish all their hopes, dreams, and desires and sort of get back to some normalcy. Well, I, I love that concept, Jason. I, I mean, I think the, uh, you know, this too shall pass and having, uh, you know, talking about folks' dreams and it's so easy to, to get caught up in the nightly news and the things, the statistics and the, is, is, are, are the numbers trending up? Are the numbers trending down? All that sort of stuff. It's, it's easy to forget that, that longer view. And, and uh, for those of us that have been around the block and have a few gray hairs or um, getting a little thin, you know, it is helpful to always uh, remember that this too, this too shall pass. So um, I do want to, I, I do want to move our conversation in a second to um, I think what's coming next, which is really kind of like the reopening of the reopening of the economy, getting back to work and things like that. But, but before I do, um, I just wanted to see anybody else have any comments um, of where, what Jason was just talking about that you'd like to add at all for either the employer or the employee perspective. 
Speak now or forever hold your peace. All right. Well, let's let's use that as uh, talking about dreams of the future and looking ahead. Uh, David Hughes, I know a lot of the, the talk is starting to shift towards states that are opening back up. Tons of controversy. It's a like everything else, it's become a politicized conversation. But, you know, if we just think about some of the practical stuff here, let, let, let's, let, let's try to talk practically speaking about what employers should be thinking about now as we start to move towards that next phase, which is how are we going to kind of get back to work in a, in a more traditional way? You want to offer some thoughts there? Sure, sure. Happy to. And, and, and piggybacking on Jason, too, I think that whole concept of anxiety definitely is going to apply you know, people are worried about the retirement accounts, but they're really going to be worried about going back to work too. So when it comes to returning, I, we're going to see the entire spectrum, I think, of, of employers where it's really kind of no big deal and they're able to pick up right where they left off. Um, but then we have those cases like, Bill, you were talking earlier about where, where they're reliant on the customer's customer, customer even, right? This sort of long value chain or like a production environment where they've got to wait for raw materials that have gone stale or disappeared right while they've been in shutdown so it, it is going to be quite a variety but the, the constant from it is that i think people are going to be a, a little jittery actually if it's early right like we're talking about here uh for georgia in particular um so making making employees feel as comfortable as you possibly can is a really big deal um from the standpoint of productivity. And I also love how Jason talked about when, when someone's stressed, like even their cognitive ability drops, right? So we, it's just not a place you want to be where you've got people that are on pins and needles, you know, in these first days and weeks. And, and we really don't want them staying away altogether, right? If a, if a business does decide to, you know, you want your people there, you need your people there. Um, so my best step for any company to take when they're returning to work is to just be really clear about your communication and, and do it frequently and explain the steps that you're taking uh, to keep people safe. Be extremely visible um, about their sanitation and protective measures. And, and I, I always say it's almost at the silly level of cleanliness. Really, it's just doing it for the sake of doing it. You know, cleaning the place four times a day is really, it, it doesn't, it makes a lot of sense, but it's a psychological effect really for people. And so, um, just recently we, we did have a, I have an essential employer and, the, and they had brought everybody back to work just this week. And so very early on, they, they learned that they needed to actually appoint a key employee as sort of a hall monitor, if you will, uh, because they had some employees that were not following the protocols. Like, you know, there were groups gathering in the break room and catching up and they kind of signed a, a cop, right. To kind of make sure that the employees themselves we're doing things the right way. And so it's something that we, no one anticipated that that would be the case before they brought everyone back. But so these kinds of things are going to happen, you know, be open about it, be public about it, um, to do everything you can over and above to make the employees feel better about, about being at work. As I said, those first, those first days and weeks, because you really want to relieve the anxiety wherever you can. 
That's a that, that's a great uh, a great way a great point I think to end on David is you know uh, we're we're looking ahead with hope and optimism and as Jason said you know uh, thinking about what are our longer term dreams but we've got some very practical new realities that we're going to need to navigate here for those essential businesses that have been operating all along they've been dealing with this for quite some time but for offices that have been working remote or operations that have been less than fully staffed um, that are going to be bringing new waves of people back into into the workforce then uh, into the workplace, then there's a whole new set of things that we have to worry about. A hall cop, a hall monitor being one of them. Interesting. So I would just, um, if I could, just 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 point folks to a couple of the um, it, the information that's included in these slides um, where, where you have more detail and more questions about any of the relief programs you can find. And of course, uh, the the one digital coronavirus coronavirus advisory hub is really your source for all information um, on uh, the crisis, navigating the crisis. And uh, in particular, you'll start to see additional information coming in there about this whole movement of, of returning to work. A lot more um, content, a lot more information, a lot more of our future conversations will be will be dedicated to uh, the uh, preparing to return to, to work in some of the new areas of concern that we need to um, to be worried about. So I would just draw your attention to those resources. Thank you uh, again to all of our panelists. I appreciate all your insights and, and your time and to all of, all of you who are viewing um, at home or in your office. Um, thank you again for your, for your time. And as usual, um, please submit any comments or questions back through our advisory hub and we'll be happy to um, address them as, um, as best we can. Thanks everybody and have a great day. Thank you for listening to this episode of One Digital's COVID-19 Employer Advisory Podcast. There's never been a time more than now during which our commitment to standing as one with our customers and providing peace of mind is more important. We are committed to providing the guidance you need to make complex decisions even in the most challenging times. For additional resources, thought leadership, or for the latest employer information related to the COVID-19 pandemic, please visit onedigital.com forward slash coronavirus. Thank you.